Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Revelation 13. Revelation 13. We're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 10. Revelation 13, verses 1 through 10. As you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome those who are joining us via our live stream. Thank you for worshiping with us today and the venue service meeting right down the hall in Reach Church DeSoto uh, that is joining us via live stream. We're grateful for all of you. Revelation 13, 1 through 10. You've heard me say that in Revelation there is um, chronology and there's biography. So chronology we've seen uh, with the seals as they are broken and the book is opened. Uh, We see chronology with the trumpets, and we'll see chronology with the bowls of judgment that will uh, be poured out in Revelation 16. But we've also seen interludes where uh, the chronology stops and God gives us greater information about certain individuals and people within the tribulation uh, so that we have greater clarity and understanding what God's doing the whole of this. It's, as you've heard me say before, it's like when you're teaching uh, history at World War II. Uh, you work through those events chronologically, but occasionally you've got to stop and you've got to look at certain individuals like Stalin and Hitler and FDR and Churchill. You've got to know those people because knowing those people gives you greater clarity of the greater conflict that is occurring. And so what God will do in Revelation, he'll stop and give us information about certain people. Well, in Revelation 12 and 13, so last week and then this week and next week, Uh, We see three individuals, and you've got to have clarity on these three individuals. You've got to know who these people are, and when you understand these three people, it gives you greater clarity of what God is doing and the the greater battle and conflict that's going on. We saw last week the the first of these three individuals, the dragon, the red dragon representing who? Satan. Say it together with me. Satan. Hopefully, I'm teaching you well. Satan, all right? That's the red dragon. We saw him last week. This week, we're going to see a beast that comes out of the sea. And then next week, we're going to see a beast that comes out of the earth. So we see these three individuals, the dragon that is Satan. The beast that comes out of the sea that we'll see today is Antichrist. And we will see an individual who is given authority. He's given authority by Satan. Um, he has a wound that is healed. So in many ways, it looks like he is resurrected, that he dies and he is resurrected. Who does that sound like? An individual that is given authority and has an incarnation and has a resurrection. Sounds a lot like Christ, doesn't it? And then next week, we're going to see a beast that comes out of the earth, a false prophet. And he's going to perform a lot of signs and wonders And in everything that he does, he is pointing and directing people to Antichrist. So does that sound like in Scripture that performs signs and wonders and is referred to as the shy member of the Trinity that is always pointing people to Christ, the Holy Spirit? Really what you're seeing in these three individuals is an unholy Trinity. In all of God's truth, Satan has a counterfeit truth. And so you're going to see, like God the Father, you're going to see Satan as the architect of plans. And he's going to give his authority to the incarnation of evil on earth in one man who will die and be resurrected named Antichrist. We saw him in 
in Revelation 6, who looks like Christ, a man on a white horse that looks like Christ, but he's not Christ, Antichrist. And then next week, we'll see the false prophet. So you're going to see darkness in the presence of light. You're going to see the unholy in the presence of a holy triune God. And while God is bringing about his purposes, Satan is attempting to bring about his purposes in a city called Babylon that God will ultimately destroy. So this week, it's Antichrist. We talked about him. It's why we studied Daniel. You've got to know Daniel if you're going to know Revelation. And in fact, that's why we studied Genesis, because you've got to know the beginning if you're going to know the end. But we studied this guy in Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 9. Specifically in Daniel 8, he's called the little horn. In 2 Thessalonians 2, he's called the man of lawlessness. Here, he is the beast coming out of the sea. He is... He is Satan's dog. He is Satan's boy. He is the one through whom Satan achieves his purposes on earth. And in the midst of the tribulation, uh, the dog is let loose from his chains. And he brings about great evil on this earth. Uh, So in light of that, boy, doesn't that get you fired up today? All right? This is... uh, I've been praying a lot about this stuff and how we encourage the saints. And I pray at the end of this, you'll be encouraged Um, But before we go to the Lord in prayer and we look at this text, I want us to pray specifically uh, for a couple people. First of all, Glenn Luke. He's up there in the balcony. Stand up and wave your hand there, Glenn. This is Glenn Luke. Glenn is serving. Yeah, go ahead and give him applause. We're going to pray for Glenn. He's serving. We support him as a missionary down in Mexico, doing a great work down there, seeing the kingdom grow, doing discipleship and church planting and all kinds of exciting things. He's here for a friend's wedding, and we're so grateful for him, and and we're going to pray for him. And then I also want us to pray, uh, many of you know, Pastor Chris Williams. His father passed away yesterday, and uh, many of you know Pastor Chris and love him dearly. And uh, I texted him this morning, and I said, when one body part hurts, the whole body hurts. And so we're hurting with him this morning, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. His dad knew the Lord. And we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So while we're rejoicing, we're also grieving. And so we want to pray. I want to pray for Glenn and also for Pastor Chris. So would you just join me in prayer this morning? Father, we are so grateful that we have the opportunity to enter into your presence and to know that you are attentive to the prayers of your people. We recognize, Lord, that we have no merit of our own on which we can come. But we come through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And through his blood that covers our sins, we're able to cry out, Abba, Father. And know that you hear the prayers of your children and you respond to the prayers of your children. And so this morning, Lord, we want to lift up two of our body. First, we want to pray for Glenn. And we're so grateful that he has opportunity to come home and to be with his friends on a joyous occasion. And I pray that it would be a time of rejuvenation and encouragement as he sees his brothers and sisters in the Lord. And God, I pray that you would open up the door for him to return and to be about the work that you've called him to do. And we pray that your good hand of favor would continue to rest upon him. But we thank you for the opportunity to see him in person today and to encourage him. And Lord, to be reminded that he has a large body of believers here that are lifting him up in prayer and encouraging as he goes. 
Lord, I also want to pray for our dear brother, Pastor Chris Williams. Lord, I want to pray for his mom and his family as they grieve the loss of a father and a husband. And God, I pray that you would wrap your arms of love around them. And even though they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, they'd fear no evil for they know that you are with them. I pray that they would not only know that you're with them, but the body of Christ is with them. And so I pray for an extra portion of your peace and grace today upon Pastor Chris and that church and that family. God, love on them and encourage them. And we pray that through this, you would bring about great glory unto yourself and to your son, Jesus. Lord, we pray this morning as we come to your word that you would help us. And God, I confess today that I am inadequate to lead this group in the study of your word. I am desperate for you and your spirit. And I pray that in no way would I muddy the water this morning, but that your word would go forth with great clarity and power. And by means of your spirit, you'd penetrate our hearts and change us. God, we do not want to just be hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. So help us, Lord, to apply it to our lives. Not just to have heads full of knowledge, but broken hearts for a lost world. And God, I pray if there be anyone that's watching this morning or anybody in this room that does not know your son Jesus, that has never placed their faith in Christ, God, I pray that you would speak into their heart today, reveal their sin, and show them the beauty of Christ who died for them. Lord, by means of your spirit and your word, bring about new birth in their heart and in their life today for your glory. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's look together. Revelation 13. Beginning in verse 1, it says, And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Some of your translations may connect that first verse with the uh, previous chapter. It may connect it to chapter 12. It's a good reminder that chapter breaks and verse breaks were not a part of the original manuscripts. Those did not come until much, much later in the 1500s with the Geneva Bible do we have the introduction of chapter breaks and verse breaks. And often we scratch our heads as to why they put the chapter breaks where they did. Um, But there are many that feel that that first verse and at least the first portion of that verse 1 goes better with chapter 12. But either way, it doesn't really affect the overall meaning or the impact of the text. We have just concluded a chapter in which we look at this dragon and now he is standing on the seashore. And it tells us going on in that verse 1, then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea. So we have a beast, and we're wondering who is this beast, and Scripture gives us some clues and some clarity. Number one, it tells us that it's a beast that comes out of the sea. The sea in Scripture is often a picture of chaos and instability. In fact, you remember the first great miracle that God performed for his people, the nation of Israel, was to lead them up to a place where the Egyptian army is behind them and what is in front of them, a big sea. And the sea to this Israel nation was always a fearful thing. It was a scary thing. It was chaotic. It was uncontrollable. It was unstable. And what does God do for the Israelites then? He parts that water and he lets them know with that first great miracle that what you're most afraid of, I'm sovereign over. It's no issue with me and I part the water You remember it brings greater clarity to Jesus when he calms the winds and the waves. And 
tells us why the disciples all of a sudden at first they're afraid of the storm. And then when Jesus calms the storm with his words, now they're afraid of Jesus. Uh, because someone greater than the waves and the storms is in the boat with them. The one who is sovereign over the winds and the waves. The one who controls the winds and the waves. Even at creation, you see God is the one who steps into the waters that were on the earth and brings about order in the midst of chaos. So here is a beast that's arising out of the chaos of the sea. And if you look at Israel, what direction, when you face and look at Israel on a map, what direction is the sea from Israel? It's to the west, right? And there are many that believe, as I do as well, that this uh, represents a beast that will arise from the west, as we're going to see kind of a revived Roman Empire coming from the west against the nation of Israel. So out of the chaos of the west and the nations, you're going to see a man and a nation arise coming towards Israel. And then we get further clues, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. We've seen this language before in both Daniel and now here, and we're going to see it again in Revelation 17. And we don't have time today, but in Revelation 17, it gives us an understanding of what these heads and these horns, we've already talked about it. Hopefully, you already understand it. But let me give it to you again in Revelation 17. It says, if, the one, if you have wisdom, you know what this is. And it says that the, the seven heads uh, are representative of seven mountains, seven kings. And you remember that after the flood, God starts over in Genesis uh, in chapter 10, 9 and 10 and 11. And God starts over after the flood. And you remember there's the Tower of Babel. And all man comes under one man named Nimrod. And they're going to build this tower and glorify themselves. And one man uh, leading all the people does not bring about great good. And God in an act of grace and sovereignty, what does he do? He scatters those people and they become nations. And so nations now arise and God selects one nation out of the nations called the nation of Israel. It'll be a miracle nation, a miracle child born to an old couple and it's going to be God's nation, his people, and it'll be the people through whom the Messiah would come. But moving on from there, you will see chronologically nations or world empires that come about that are always, there's two commonalities between all of them as we're going to see in this text. They are satanic and that God is behind them and they always hate God and his people Israel. And so they come against a physical nation of Israel. We've talked about this, but in Genesis 12, when Abraham flees the famine, where does he go down to? What nation does he go down to for protection and provision? He goes where? Egypt, and you see these great world empires, and they will always come against a, a physical nation of Israel. So you got Egypt, and Assyria, and Babylon, and Persia, and Greece, and then what nation would conquer the Greeks? The Romans. In fact, in, in Revelation 17, we'll study it in a few weeks, but in Revelation 17, when he talks about these seven kings, these seven mountains, he says that five were or five have all fallen. What are those five? It's Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Greece. At the time that John was writing, all of those kings and kingdoms had fallen. They were dead kings and dead kingdoms. They had fallen. And then he says, one is. What is the nation that is during the time of John's writing? It's the nation of Rome or the empire of Rome, the Roman empire. And then he says, there is one that is yet to come. There's going to be one that's going to come later. And it's future. 
And he says that it will be ten horns. That's what we see here. So there's a final nation, a seven world empire that will come. And it will be a ten nation confederacy rising from the west. A revived Roman empire that will come against the nation of Israel. Now what's interesting is the previous five or previous six kingdoms or empires were all consecutive. But with the fall of Rome uh, to the seventh empire that we're still waiting on, there's been 2,000 years, hasn't there? There's a bit of a gap here. What's the gap about? What, what's, what is God doing in the midst of this 2,000-year gap in which we don't see any world empire? Has there been people who've tried to create world empires? Yes, and they failed. There's been nation states, but no one world empire. But what has God been doing? It's called the mystery Uh, That's what Paul calls it in Ephesians. It's the mystery. What is the mystery? It's called the church. What has God been doing during this 2,000-year period between the fall of Rome in 400 A.D. and the coming empire? There's been at least 2,000 years. But God's been doing what? He's calling out a people. What's the church? It's ecclesia, the kaleo called, ek, out from, the called out ones. God is calling out a people. He's gathering his children, his church. He's turned his attention away from the nation of Israel that's rejected him, and he's turned his attention to the Gentile nations. That's you and I for the most part. If you can't trace your lineage back to Abraham, that's us. God's turned his attention to us, and he's drawing out a people called the church. In fact, what did Peter say? God is not slow about, prom- about the promise as some count slowness, but he's what? He's patient. Desiring that none should perish, but that all would come to faith in Christ. Aren't you glad God's been patient? That he, in the midst of this time, that's, in fact, Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2 calls it the mystery of lawlessness. Whenever you hear the, see the word mystery in scripture, it's talking normally about the church or some aspect of the church. The mystery of law, you know what the mystery of lawlessness is? The world today, what do they say? If God's so good, why does he allow all this evil? But what do we know? That while God is allowing evil, even right now as I speak, we know that evil things are happening all over the world, don't we? But at the same time, what do we also know is occurring? God is saving out of people, don't we? That every minute of every day, there's somebody around the world that trusts in Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. That's the mystery of lawlessness. That's the gap between these 2,000 years. But eventually, there'll be one world empire that will arise again. It will be the final of these seventh empires that God tells us about. And it'll be headed up by one man called Antichrist. And the ten horns, those ten horns are the kings of the kingdoms that have yet to come. There's going to be a ten-nation confederacy. We see this throughout Scripture in Daniel. We see it in other places in Scripture. But there will be this seventh empire will be a ten-nation confederacy. They're all going to give control. They're all going to give their control and authority over to Antichrist. And he will lead them. And they'll head all things back up to one individual, Antichrist. And it will not bring about great good. It will bring about great evil. So this beast, bottom line, let me... (laughs) Hopefully it's clear as mud now, isn't it? You guys are, hopefully I'm not totally, I told Faith last night, I said, I feel like I confused them. I don't want anybody to be confused. The beast here is a man. It represents a man and a nation. It'll be the final of those seven worldwide empires that will come against the physical nation of Israel. Do you understand why, too, this was difficult to interpret prior to 1948? The scholars had such difficulty with this. Where, how can a world empire come against a physical Israel? 
when there is no physical Israel. But then you understand when Israel becomes a nation in 1948, all of a sudden this becomes very real, doesn't it? And we begin to see how the pieces are falling in place. But there will be a final empire that will come against the nation of Israel, physical nation of Israel, and it will be headed up by one man known as Antichrist, and he will lead this, this empire that comes from the west, from the chaos of the sea and of the nations. Then look at verse 2. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his authority and his throne and great authority. Um, these should sound, these, these beasts, these animals should sound familiar. We studied them in Daniel chapter 7. Um, these beasts that we see here, the leopard is Greece, the bear is Persia, the lion is Babylon. The only difference here that we see uh, from Daniel chapter 7 is that they're in reverse order. And most commentators agree that this, this just shows you that Daniel was looking forward, giving you them consecutive orders they move forward. John is now looking back at these nations that have fallen. But the important thing to know is that this seventh empire, world empire, will be a combination of all those previous world empires. In other words, you think Babylon was bad? Wait until this empire shows up. You think Persia was bad? Wait until it'll combine the, the, the speed and the quickness of Greece with the leopard and the ferocity of the Babylon lion and Persia. It will take on all those characteristics combined into one world empire that will move against God and his people. And you'll notice at the end of verse 2, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And what you recognize there is that this man and this nation did not arise on his own. Who gives him his power? Satan. Satan grants to him his throne, his power, and his authority. Do you remember another individual in the New Testament that Satan took on a high mountain and said all the kingdoms of the world can be yours. You remember that individual? Who was it? Jesus. In Matthew chapter 4, Satan takes Christ up onto this high place, this high mountain, says look at all this. It can all be yours. But you got to worship me. And what did Jesus say? And the word says you shall worship the Lord God and him alone. He says, I will not take these world empires by means of evil. I will trust and submit to God's perfect plan. Because in the end, all the nations will be his. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But I will not take it by means of evil. Well, right here, Satan grants to one man the opportunity to have all the kingdoms of the world in his power and his control. And when this guy gets into a place of authority and he's given that opportunity, it will bring about evil unlike this world has ever known before. Then look at verse 3. I saw one of his heads um, as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. So here you see one of the heads uh, slain and then healed. Um, the idea being that it dies and then it comes back to life. There's two main interpretations of this. One is that that's referring to the Roman Empire. 
that the Roman Empire, for all intents and purposes, in 400, 467, I think, A.D., the Roman Empire officially fell. It was killed. It died. But in the midst of the tribulation period, there will be a revival of the Roman Empire headed up by Antichrist that will come against the nation of Israel. So you'll have a resurrected empire and the world will be amazed at the rise of this Roman Empire and they will all follow after them. Uh, there's that interpretation. And then there's the, probably the more classic interpretation is that this is referring to Antichrist. In the midst of the tribulation, Antichrist will be assassinated or appear to be assassinated and then appear to be raised back from the dead and the world will be amazed and they'll follow after him. I tend towards the latter of those interpretations because we see that in almost every way, Antichrist will imitate Christ. He will imitate Christ in his incarnation. He will in, imitate Christ in his authority. And he will even attempt to imitate Christ in his resurrection. I think it is a great deception. I don't think it's a literal death and resurrection. I think it's the final trick of Satan. And he tricks the world and it works. And the world is amazed. And now the world follows after this one man, the beast, Antichrist. It's interesting, when you look at world history, uh, there has continually been men who try to rise up and create a world power. We see this with Hitler, uh, men like Stalin, uh, Mao Zedong. You see this throughout history, these men who arise and they're evil and they're given a position. And they find that position and they seek to gain world control, but something always happens, doesn't it? God always raises up a people or a nation, and that empire is put down. So we see this. I think throughout history, Satan has had men and kings and leaders through which he worked, and God has always been at work through his people, and so there's never been a great world power. But imagine if Hitler had been able to control the world. Imagine if Stalin had been able to control the world, but God has restrained them, hasn't he? God has said you only go this far and you don't go any further. Until what? Until the tribulation. And now this guy is given full world control. What has changed? What has changed is that the restrainer is gone. At this point, you have the worst of the worst given full power. And the best way I know to do it is the pit bull is loosed from his chain. And he's given free reign to rule this earth. You talk about a scary time. And so the world follows after this beast in verse 3. In verse 4, they worship the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worship the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? This is the ultimate form of blasphemy. That the world attributes to Satan that which can only be attributed to God. And they worship the dragon. Notice there too, they're not worshiping. It says ultimately they're not worshiping the, the Antichrist or the beast. They're worshiping who? They're worshiping the dragon, which is Satan. In worshiping Antichrist, who they're ultimately worshiping is Satan. Very similar to when we worship Christ, who are we ultimately worshiping? We're worshiping God the Father. 
Here you see an entire world going after and falling underneath this one world leader known as Antichrist. And I don't know about you, but as I studied this, it was so hard for me to grasp. How in the world will we ever get to a day where the whole world will essentially come underneath one leader? But you know, the more I think about it, it's not so far-fetched, is it? That to many extents, this is what the world wants today, don't they? They want a world with no boundaries, no borders. We're all one. We're all equal. There's no distinctions. One world government. If we could just get underneath one guy who would rule us. And one currency. And in fact, we're going to see next week one religion. And that is exactly what's going to occur. If you want that, just reject Christ and stick around because you're going to get it one day. And believe me, the lie of Satan in the world is that if you get that, if we just all come underneath one guy and one government with one currency all equal, it'd bring about great good and peace. It will not bring about great good and peace. It'll bring about great evil because man and his sinfulness is flawed. We have tried, when you think about it, we've tried just about every form of government, haven't we? And we tried fascism where one man just dominates and beats everybody into submission. We've tried dynasties. We've tried uh, uh, mon- monarch dionyses. We've seen these things. We've tried uh, senators, senile, you know what senators, senile old men. That's where that word senator comes from, senile. I looked it up this week just to make sure I wasn't giving you Wrong data. Senile old men. But really, Rome Rome tried a senatorial government, didn't they? And it didn't work. And we've tried a constitutional republic. And I think it's about as good as man can do. But guess what? Any form of government that's based on man will ultimately fall. And we've always known, even the founders of this country, that the constitutional republic will only work in as much as you stay tethered to a God who gives truth and morality. And you untether yourself from God and it breaks down. And we always knew there would come a day when there would no longer be statesmen and stateswomen who live and rule and govern on the basis of principles and truth. But they just put their finger in the wind and they do whatever the world wants And when that day comes, it falls too. Listen, this is a good reminder to us that every other form of government and every other nation will one day break down. Because there's only one rule of government that ultimately works. And it's Jesus Christ. He's the only one who rules perfectly because he lays down his life for the people and he's in perfect keeping with truth and righteousness and therefore he's the only one who can truly give life. It's the only form of government that ultimately works. And one day, it'll happen. One day Christ will return. He'll put down all other forms of government. In fact, false government that we see right here, the Antichrist, And the false prophet are both thrown into the eternal lake of fire. And there's only Christ. No more politics and no more religion. Only Jesus Christ, priest and king. Amen. Can you deal with that? That'd be a good day. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
But right here in the tribulation, you know what's interesting? It all goes back to the Tower of Babel, doesn't it? You've got a Nimrod Antichrist who is bringing everything underneath himself. And it will not bring about great good. It will bring about great evil. And what does it say in verse 6? Verse 5, let's back up. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. And authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Notice here, he's on a time frame, isn't he? He only gets, Satan only does what God permits him to do. You remember with Job? God said, have you considered my servant Job? Uh, Well, he only serves you because of the stuff you give him. Well, you can take it. You can even affect his skin, but you can't take his own life. God says, you can only go so far. Peter, Simon Peter, Satan has asked permission to sift you, but I prayed for you. He can only go as far as God allows him to go. He's going to be on a limited time frame. In verse 6, and he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God. To blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, that is those who dwell in heaven. So he blasphemes, he hates God, he hates his name, he hates his place, he hates his people. In verse 7, it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. He may overcome them, remember, because we already studied this in uh, chapter 12, that they overcame by what? By the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they didn't love their life even when faced with death. He can overcome them physically, but he cannot overcome them spiritually. So he may take their life, but he can't take their eternity. And so he overcame them. He makes war with them. In verse 7, an authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Notice there, it's given to him. He is given permission Verse 8, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. So you've got a whole world bending the knee to this antichrist. Except, so right here it says, uh, everyone whose name is not written in the lamb's book of life. But there's another group of people whose name is written in the lamb's book of life and they will not bow the knee. So you've got a world of people bowing the knee. But there's one group of people who will not bow the knee. you got tribulation saints in the midst of this. See, Christianity is not just that. Uh, Christians are not just those who worship Jesus. Christians are people who worship Jesus alone. I mean, we don't bow to another. Uh, the thought is that in the midst of the tribulation for the first three and a half years, Antichrist will come forth bringing peace. But he'll bring all people, as we're going to see next week, under one religion. But I think the thought is, in the first three and a half years, Antichrist will say that you can keep your religion, but every year you got to bow down to me if you want to do business. And so he'll say, you can keep you, you, Buddhist, whatever, Muslim, whatever, you can, keep your, you can keep that as long as you bow to me. But, but three and a half years in, what does he do? He sets himself up in the temple of God, and he makes himself out to be God, and he says, you worship me or you die. And so it sounds, starts off very subtly, and then later... You worship me or you die. But there's a group of people who will not bow. Then look at verses uh, 9 and 10. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. There's a little discrepancy over the interpretation of these last two verses. 
Um, this is my interpretation. When it says, if anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity it goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he'll be killed. I think the idea is that, it, that for the tribulation saints in the midst of this, he's saying, it's kind of practical advice for tribulation saints. If you're there and you are destined for jail or imprisonment, you go willingly. You submit and you go. If you're going to die, if they condemn you to death, you die. You bow willingly. You entrust yourself. You persevere and you're faithful. Isn't that the example of Christ? That while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats. He kept what? Entrusting himself to him who judges faithfully. So in the midst of the tribulation, some practical advice for those saints is when you are condemned to death or prison, you go willingly and you entrust yourself to God because you know what? You know there's a day coming that regardless of what they do with you here, one day you'll stand before the ultimate judge and through faith in Christ you will win. In fact, that's what it says at the end of verse 10. This is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Christians, true Christians, and the true and ultimate mark of Christians is that we are faithful to the very end. To the very last breath, we are faithful to Christ. That we don't love our lives even when faced with death. To the very end, clinging and trusting in Christ alone. So how do we, what do we do with this? That, that's, as I've been praying this week, a lot of information on Antichrist. What do we do with this? Let me give you quickly, here at the end. My son says when you say quickly, it means you got 10 more minutes, all right? So bear with me. There's no Chiefs game today, all right? So you got time. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and you need to go read this. It gives you greater information on Antichrist and what's going to occur. Paul is writing to a group of Thessalonians. He always writes for a purpose. And he's writing to a group of people who are confused about the day of the Lord and the rapture and the tribulation. Uh, and they are living in the midst of very difficult days. And there's this rumor going around or some false teachers who are saying that you're in the tribulation. You're already in the tribulation. And throughout the history of the church, there's always been people in the light of difficulties of this world who say, we're in the tribulation right now. Even today, people ask, are we in the tribulation? Paul says, I write to you so you're not shaken or confused. I want you to have clarity. Paul was only with the Thessalonians for three weeks, and he taught them eschatology. He taught them about the day of the Lord. How many of you, when you were a Christian for three weeks, somebody sat down and said, you need to know Revelation? That's pretty important. So Paul teaches them. He doesn't want them to be confused because they're worried about the loved ones who have passed away and have we missed the rapture or the day of the Lord? Are we in the tribulation? He writes to them and he says three things got to occur before the tribulation. People ask me right now, is the are we in the tribulation? Three things that have to occur, Paul says, before the tribulation. Number one, he says the apostasy. A worldwide apostasy. Um, stasis, stand. Apo, from, to stand away. It means a worldwide rejection of God, truth, and his son. Now, are we getting close? We're getting close. But we're talking about a worldwide apostasy, a rejection of God and truth and his word and his son. So that's the first thing, apostasy, worldwide rejection. 
Then he says the second thing is the man of lawlessness. So he says Antichrist is going to be revealed. And by the way, I don't think you're going to have to guess who the Antichrist is. I think you're going to know with great clarity. And so he says the Antichrist must appear. And then the final thing is that the restrainer must be removed. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the church. He says, Dill, the restrainer is taken away. Taken. In 1 Thessalonians, he says that we are caught up so that we meet the Lord in the air. Don't let anybody ever tell you the word rapture is not in Scripture. In 1 Thessalonians 4, caught up is the Greek word harpazo. It means to snatch or enwrap, raptured, taken out. And so the church, so the three things, you got to have a worldwide apostasy, Antichrist got to be revealed, and the church has to be removed. Now here's the question, why is the church removed? Because all this stuff that we're studying today, I believe with all my heart, we're not going to be there. If we truly know Christ. So why, what, why must we be removed? Let me give you three more things. Why must we be removed? Because the tribulation is the renewal of God's purposes with one nation called the nation of Israel. Okay, that, if there's one nation, if you, we've been studying this, there's no mentioning of the church from Revelation 6 to Revelation 18. What we're talking about is God's dealing with the nation of Israel. It's the renewal of God's purposes with Israel. In fact, Jeremiah calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. It's God's dealing with Israel. Now, there's going to be people who come to faith, Gentiles who come to faith in the midst of the tribulation. And those are tribulation saints. But the church is removed. Secondly, not only is it the renewal of God's purposes with Israel, but it's God's wrath poured out on an unbelieving world. As Christians, we have not been saved unto the wrath of God. And this is wrath. You read Revelation 6 through 18. I understand we're going to go through trials. I'll talk about that in just a minute. But listen. Revelation 6 through 18 is not trials, it's wrath. In fact, there are people, I think in Revelation 9, yes, at the end of Revelation 9, the people cry out for rocks to fall on them, to hide them from what? From the wrath of the Lamb is what it says. This is the wrath of God being poured out on a world that has rejected him. And so two things, number one, uh, it's the time of Jacob's trouble. Two is the wrath of God poured out on a world that's rejected him. And the third thing, the reason we're not there, is because our day of testing is now. Our day of testing is now. So these tribulation saints that are there, they have to persevere. They persevere in the midst of that day. Our job is to persevere in the midst of our day. Today, this is our day. And we're not promised a bed of roses. I really feel like that as American Christians, we've gotten so, we've been so blessed, we've got a sense of entitlement that somehow our life is supposed to be good and better. Well, talk to Christians in China. Talk to Christians in Russia. Talk to Christians in, in certain parts of Africa. You ask them how the Christian life goes when you trust in Christ. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. 
Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery deal among you as if some strange thing were happening to you. Your time of testing is today. It's now. And you have to be my people that stand up in a dark and difficult day and you testify to the name of Jesus and the king who saved you and the king who saved them. That's our job in the midst of a difficult day. In fact, Jesus in in Matthew and Mark, when he talks about uh, the strong man guarding his possessions, but then he says when someone stronger than him comes into the house, he plunders his possession. Who's Who's the strong man? Satan. Who are his possessions? It's us. Who's the stronger person? It's Jesus. He came in. He defeated Satan. He, he's, he's cut his tendons. He's lost his power. And now the gospel goes forth. And God is plundering Satan's possessions as he calls out a people. But then you know what he says at the end of that? He says, he, in both occasions, he says, he who is not with me is against me. Do you know what I think the greatest threat to Christianity is? It's not liberalism. It's not socialism. It's not communism. It is Christians who are trying to get into heaven without ever telling anybody about Jesus. Listen to me this morning. We have a job. Christ only gave us one mission. You understand that. He didn't make this complicated. He gave us one thing to do. Make disciples. Tell people about Jesus. Do you know what this day is? It's a drawing a line in the sand and deciding which side are you on. Uh, when I was reading this, you, you remember Gideon? Gideon um, is fighting the Midianites, and he's chasing them. He's going to get them. He's chasing them. This little army, this little guy chasing at the Midianites. He stops off in a place called Succoth. I like the name because it describes the people. They weren't good. So, don't get confused here. All right, so those people, though, he stops off in this city, and you know what he says to them? He says, I need your help. I need your help. You know what they say? They ask him, have you already gotten the king? No, no, he's not in my hands yet. Well, we're we're, going to sit by and wait and see how this works out before we get involved. And you know what Gideon says? Not if I get them. He says, when I whip the Midianites, I'm coming back, I'm going to whip you. Because he says, if you're not with me, you're against me. Listen, this is a time to decide whose side are you on. This is not peacetime. This is not time to sit back and do nothing. This is not a time to wait and see how it's going to work out. Now is a time to stand up for Christ and tell a lost world that King Jesus has saved us and he'll save you and he's coming back one day. And if you will not bend the knee, one day you will. That's our job. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, that's what we're about telling you, that there's a day of judgment coming. We want to be very honest with you. We don't want to pull any punches, that there's a day of judgment coming. And the option is not, um, it's not, well, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want to go through Jesus. Jesus is not just a beautiful thing you opt for. The option is eternity with Christ forever in heaven, or the option is eternity separated from Christ forever in hell. But you can't say, I want to go to heaven, but I don't want Jesus. He's the only way. 
And so we tell you today, if you have not bent the knee to Christ, I can tell you today, he's a great and wonderful king. He rules in righteousness and peace. And your life will have purpose and meaning. He will give you life here, and he'll give you life for eternity. But if you will not bow the knee, there's a day coming. For those of us that do know Christ, today is our day to stand. Do we have a hymn? Really quick. (laughs) Village in India. Didn't know Christ. A missionary went over there, started to share the gospel. He met a man and his family, shared the gospel with them. They prayed to receive Christ. Went back to his village. The chieftain pulled him out, said, you got to recant Christ. Renounce Christ or there's going to be consequences. You know what the man said? He said, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. And the chieftain gave the orders and his two boys were executed. Chieftain went back to him again. I'm I'm pleading with you, recant this nonsense, this person that we've not heard of, Jesus. Recant Christ. And the father said, though none go with me, I still will follow. And the chieftain gave the order and his wife was executed. And he came to him finally and said, for your own life, I'm pleading with you, recant Christ. And he said, the world's behind me and the cross is before me. No turning back. And they took his life. And the testimony of that village is that not shortly thereafter, the entire village came to know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. This is our day to stand. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks so plainly to us about what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. God, I pray if there's anybody in this room right now, God, I know there's, there's probably somebody here in this room, probably somebody watching online. I don't know where they're at. You know them, God. And right now, they're struggling in their heart. Maybe they've been trusting their good works. Maybe they've been trusting in church attendance. Uh, maybe they've been... D- trusting their denominational affiliation. Maybe they say, well, my parents are good Christians. I don't know what they've been trusting in, but if they're trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ and his shed blood, I pray this morning you would convict them of their sin. I pray that you would draw them to the love of Christ and they would repent of their sins. They'd turn and trust Christ with all their heart for salvation. I pray that they would be reborn by the Spirit of God and the Word of God down a new path and a path that leads to life. God, the for those of us that do know you, Lord, help us not to be lulled to sleep. Help us to not make this our home. Help us to not get too comfortable here. This is not our home. We are strangers in a foreign land. We are just passing through. So God, I pray that we would not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God into salvation for all who would believe. I pray that we would stand I pray that we would be bold to tell people about Christ, knowing the time is short and judgment is coming. Lord, help us. We love you. We give you our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.